This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select at random or via a Twitter poll. Any book for my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 177th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we are looking at an issue that was selected via Twitter poll. From four choices, all from DC Comics, the overwhelming selection with 37% of the vote The book that we will be covering is World's Finest Comics 277, cover dated March 1982. But first, a little feedback on the prior two episodes. On episode 175, Twilight Zone, Dr. Ange had a few things to say. Not about the comic, really, just about the writer of the comic. Always good to hear you and Paul chat. And this story does indeed sound interesting, with a nice twist ending. But count me in as one of those on the UG JMS side of the scale. I truly loved his work on Supreme Power, one of the few deconstructions of DC archetypes that I thought worked. However, once he started grounded and left halfway through when it was clear that this was a bad direction, Oh, something he did on Wonder Woman at the same time? I said, never again. I won't give him another dime. Totally understand that, Doc. I get that, and we can still be friends. And our friend, Sir Sir Martin of Grey, had similar thoughts. I'm with Ange. JMS has talent, but he's not someone whose work I'd support. Mind Superman Grounded was terrible. When Chris Roberson took over to fill in the details from his outline, it became a delight. Anyway, I'm a Twilight Zone fan too and heartily second Paul's recommendation of the Twilight Zone Companion, which I got inside a DVD box set. It's a fascinating, fun read. I found this issue online, and it's distinctly average. The art is mostly, well, dodgy. Page 9 is nice. The opening, Rod Serling-style narration is splendid, but the main story I found less so. If the ghosts are there to be helpful, why do they keep appearing in threatening mode? Even Jacob Marley just did the odd rattle before getting to the point. And as for lionizing the oh-so-insightful and irresistible writer, i.e. himself, it's excruciating. The story lacks a true sense of unease of the uncanny. Also, someone misspelled foreign in a newspaper headline. Yes, Mart, the writer writing about writers is a trope I tend to recoil from myself. Totally understand that. And as far as the improper spelling, I wonder if the inker of the letter just left out a couple of those extra U's that you folk across the pond seem so fond of. And although he did not mean it directly as feedback to this episode, podcasting's Michael Bailey posted that he had recently begun reading JMS's memoir, Becoming Superman, and reported that it was harrowing. Absolutely, Mike. It was intense indeed. Now on last episode, The She-Hulk Story, We heard from Billy D from Magazines and Monsters. Thank you, as always, for sharing your joy for comics, humor, and speaking the truth. Ruth and Darren may be listeners of the year, but I'm your biggest fan. Gauntlet thrown down. I I don't know about biggest fan, Billy, but you are certainly the quickest replying fan to most episodes. You... And Clinton, so I appreciate that. Sir, Sir Martin of Grey reported that he had issues posting comments on the blog spot, and no, I have no idea why that is. But it is certainly 
probably my fault, seeing as I haven't updated any bit of coding on that site for like eight plus years. But he did manage to communicate. Cheers for a great show. This episode especially interests me as I never saw She-Hulk in UK shops until the ninth issue. Looking at the covers in the Grand Comics database, I don't seem to have bought many more of them. It's not surprising when you look at the no-name enemies she had. Wait, Mark. Are you calling the Silver Serpent or Scarlet Serpent or whatever it was a no-name? Seems to me that's technically a two-name villain. This particular issue, Mart continues, which I've just read on Marvel Unlimited, seems like the others I've read. Dull A-plot, fun soap opera with Jennifer. I'd forgotten about Jen's pal Zonker or Zapper or whatever. Wonder what he's up to these days. Did you ever read the 15th issue, he says. Great covers, weird PSA-style story about a diabetic singer. No, I haven't, Martin. And I can see how this over and over might not appeal. One of the things I enjoy about this show is that we give high points to adventurous one-and-dones, which issue five totally was. And again, like I said, in terms of what Zapper is up to these days, I'm guessing it involves a parole officer. Voice actor Gene Hendricks asked the question that was raised in that issue. What kind of machine was it? And then posted a Kristen Ritter gif of boring. I love you, Gene. Chris Willette talked a little about the issue, but mostly about my business commentary in that episode. I always enjoy your comic book overviews and critique. And the bonus talk on responsible capitalism was really great, even with bad actors. So much has been done to raise people up. Air conditioning, I remember, was a luxury when I was a kid, but now it's so common that not having it is a sign of desperation or poverty. The homeless man asking for work gave me his cell number to text in case anything came up. The wisest man once said, the poor will always be with you. And that's true, but I am glad this situation seems better than it used to be. Yes, Chris, it, it is a matter of measuring poverty and wealth either in absolute manners or relative manners. People take different positions or priorities on that, different perspectives, uh, perhaps. But for the most often or, or more often, in most cases, the absolute manner is more valuable. Again, these two approaches tell two different stories. And it's because of that absolute manner is why I focus so much on inflation as a cause of misery in the short and long terms. In class, I call inflation a value killer. But more casually, it's a pay cut. Because absolutely, we buy less stuff than we could have previously. As I record this, We had a recent official quarterly inflation number in the U.S. of around 6%. Or as I put it when that news story hit, congratulations, everyone. We all just got a 6% pay cut. Back to the comic itself, sir. I was Joe was excited to see this covered. Sweet. The first issue I ever had of She-Hulk. Luke Giaconetti said he'd listened while driving home from the Thanksgiving holiday. The kids were all pretty amused to hear you read my email. Amused, you say, Luke, but I bet your kids were awed by your presence on the show. And we heard from podcasting's Michael Bailey. Professor Allen, I very much enjoyed your coverage of Savage She-Hulk number 5, particularly your breakdown of why the plot, while perfectly fine for a comic book of its era, doesn't really work upon real-world scrutiny. I also enjoyed your socio-political commentary mixed with a lesson in finance. I found myself agreeing with much of it. Also, comparing She-Hulk and Stella might be problematic. You see, Professor, one of them is a woman of small stature who turns into a rage monster when angered. 
striking back at those who made her mad. And the other woman is She-Hulk. I mean, I've never read an issue of She-Hulk where she cried to the heavens about those who have betrayed her. Great show as always, podcasting's Michael Bailey. You know, Mike, one of the things I love about having a, let's say, curated, small-batch podcasting audience is that I can specifically send messages to particular listeners, like you or Martin or Luke, or particular non-listeners like Stella. Although I'm sure my comments will somehow get back to her. Darn you, Panarese! Personally, Mike, I LOL'd out loud at your Stella joke. Whatever ire is directed your way, totally worth it. Social media love for last episode came from Keith G. Baker, Chris Lydon, Vic in Phoenix, Derek, Derek WC, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Pat from the Longbox Crusade, Kirk Spencer, Big Five Army, Booker T., Ren Chandler 4, Jack Rambo, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Ed Moore from Teal Productions, Star Rocket Radio, Robert Ludwig, The Most Sane Man Among Us, The Days of High Adventure, The Telltale Mind, Drew from Comics for Fun and Profit, Guano Man, Chris Dunford, Aaron Henley, and our Listeners of the Year, whose unprecedented two-year reign is quickly coming to a glorious and groundbreaking end. The kind and lovely Sutherlands from the Rad Adventures Network. So let's take a break here, and when we come back, we will start our discussion of World's Finest 277. Stellar Studios presents an Into the Weird and a World on Fire production. Starring in alphabetical order, Brainwave Jr., Fury, Jade, Northwind, Nuclon, Obsidian, The Silver Scarab, The Star Spangled Kid. These are the members of Infinity Inc., the protégés and children of the legendary Justice Society. Created by Roy Thomas, Jerry Ordway, and Mike Macklin, their 1980s adventures are chronicled at last by Herman Lowe and Billy Dee, two podcasters with way too much time on their hands, but dedicated to analyzing, glorifying, and sometimes vilifying the stories from the team's first series. So hop in your Star Rocket Racer, switch on the radio, and let's rediscover the Earth 2 we'd all like to go back to. Star Rocket Radio an Infinity Inc. podcast, soaring through the potosphere since September 2021. And we're back. World's Finest 277 at a cover price of 100 pennies. In case you don't believe me, it does say Dollar Comic right there on the cover. All of that means I acquired this at a very, very, very easy to compute 75% markdown. The cover by George Perez and Bob Smith shows a central circular panel in which Batman and Superman are bursting in on a fella claiming that even though the heroes have captured him, my plague germs will kill millions. Seriously? Seriously. I want to remind all of you that you voted for this issue. Come on, people. Anyway, surrounding the circle are four individual figures of Zatanna, Shazam, I know, he's Captain Marvel, but the cover does say Shazam. Zatanna, Shazam, Green Arrow, and Hawkman. 
I love the Dollar Comics era, so that's probably biasing me a bit here. But I think this is a fine, dramatic cover. There are five stories in this issue, and we're going to do all five recaps, maybe with a break in between them at some point. But we're going to do all the recaps and then do an overview, commentary, or analysis on the issue as a whole after all of the recaps. And and fear not, the recaps will not be super-duper detailed. Hopefully, maybe just super-detailed. And of course, we start the issue with another adventure of the world's finest team of Superman and Batman. This is the longest story in the issue, coming in at 14 pages. The story, Beast of Plague, oh boy, was written by Carrie Burkett, with art by Don Heck and Romeo Tangal. I read a ton of DC comics in the 70s and early 80s, and maybe it's also because he has a distinctive first name, but I remember Romeo Tengal. I didn't exactly know what an inker did back then, and I probably barely do now, but I will confess I have always been warmly disposed towards Tangal. This first story starts at midnight in Gotham City, and as two furtive figures move warily through a shadowed alleyway, A pair of sharp eyes peer through the slits of a unique mask, watching their every move. Squirrel Randolph is smuggling domestic animals to Metropolis, and Batman wants to know what that's all about. And despite his tear-gas-infused interrogation, the thug refuses to answer his gentle questions. Why would anyone want to transport stray animals from Gotham? to Metropolis. Meanwhile, in Metropolis, Clark Kent learns that Planet reporter Ed Anders has gone missing, and he goes looking for him as Superman. When he finds Anders, the reporter claims to be infected with some kind of deadly virus. And a little X-ray vision medical exam confirms that. These bacteria are unlike any I've ever seen before, and totally deadly to man. Thanks, Superman. After leaving Ed's dead body at Star Labs and taking a decontamination bath in the sun, he heads to Gotham to ask for Batman's detective skills. The world's finest team investigate the source of the virus. Batman does some solid detecting here, by the way and they learn that it is mainly transmitted from animals to humans. Remind me why y'all voted for this issue again, please? Anyone? (sighs) Now, knowing that there is a connection between the smuggling of the animals that he noticed earlier, Batman interrogates a fellow and learns the location of where they were supposed to deliver the Animals, which is a waterfront warehouse. Meanwhile, ace reporter Lois Lane has followed her own clues about Anders, which leads her to a waterfront warehouse. And since it's 1982, she's kidnapped and taken to their boss, the mad scientist responsible for developing the plague. Metropolis is just a testing ground. When I have achieved success here, I shall carry my crusade to other cities. The human population must be reduced and controlled. I seek no profit, only solitude. Now, while I can't disagree with this fella's overall goal of just being left alone, the killing of billions probably a little over the line. Superman and Batman fly to the warehouse. Well, Superman flies, holding Batman in front of him. Visually, it kind of looks like Batman is flying with a Superman-shaped parachute on his back. 
the world's finest heroes arrive in time to rescue Lois and get this, stop the evil scheme. Unfortunately, in his confrontation with Batman, the mad scientist, quote-unquote, falls back towards the bacteria incubator. I'm not saying Batman pushed him into the incubator, but I am definitely saying he maybe didn't try really hard to stop him. The man is exposed to his own deadly plague, and even the scientists at Star Labs, even they cannot find a cure. Again, I suspect they probably could have found a cure, but a massive grant from the Wayne Foundation suggested that maybe they, you know, not find a cure. Just saying. At this point, Batman points out the obvious to Lois, which is that Superman always comes to rescue her, and then he comes to rescue her, and he inhales all of the deadly plague material into his super lungs. And in a classic Bronze Age Superman move, he heads back to his old trusty friend, the Sun, and tosses the virus into it. Okay, he exhales the virus into the Sun. And the case is solved. Lois writes the story, but decides to give the credit to the man who really deserves it. Reporter. Ed Anders. The end. Next up is an eight-page story featuring the Emerald Archer, for which I do not actually see a title. There is a newspaper on the second page of the story that contains the headline, Green Arrow Sought for Questioning in Murder. And the newspaper itself contains the creator credits. So that headline may have been intended to be the title panel of the story. I kind of hope so, because in that headline, Green Arrow is presented both in his current logo and with the circular R for registered trademark. And, you know, I don't think that's how newspaper headlines work. So that's probably the credits. Uh, This story was written by Mike W. Barr with art by Trevor Von Eden and Rodan Rodriguez. The story starts one morning in Star City, where corruption may wear a mask of steel and glass. A man is in an office waiting to meet with Morgan Thorpe. His secretary can't imagine why he's late with appointments, so decides to check in on him and finds out why Morgan Thorpe is late that morning. Because now, he's the late Morgan Thorpe. Dead, with an arrow sticking out of his chest. Oliver Queen is currently in jail, and when Dinah comes to spring him from the joint, she holds up that credit-filled newspaper headline, proclaiming that Green Arrow was being sought for murder. When Ollie and Dinah get back to their place, they start with some serious smooching. But you'll have to excuse me, because I have a job to do. In another age, this man would have been a buccaneer, a swashbuckling crusader, sometimes at odds with the authorities, but always on the side of justice. We learn that the secretary from the opening scene has been Oliver Source, or Stool Pigeon, which is probably how he got released. Investigating Thorpe, By sneaking into the Star City PD and rifling their files, he learns that the arrow was definitely his. But you know, he leaves those all over the city, so that doesn't prove much. But he is interrupted by Lieutenant Trask and has to use some fancy arrowing to escape. So that's right. Another episode, another comic, another publisher, another character named Trask. Anyway, he manages to escape to the Telco building, the offices of a new crime boss. Trask's file said these guys want Thorpe dead so they could move in on his territory. Admitting that he is more Ollie Queen than Ellery Queen, he again gets sneaked up upon 
by said new crime boss, Lady Ashford. She says she cannot permit him to eavesdrop on her any longer. At least, not the first part of that word, but the drop, I think I can manage. And with that, on the last panel, Ollie is tossed off the edge of the very, very tall building. To be continued, next issue. Oh, the drama. We then run directly into eight pages of a Zatanna story. And I mean right directly, like without advertising between the stories. Because the cover of this issue did proclaim that this contained nonstop cover-to-cover action. And I assumed that that was mere puffery, cover copy designed to sell the excitement of the stories within. But in fact, that meant literally cover-to-cover comics, as in no ads, no outside ads, not even house ads. Nice. So this is Doppelganger, written by Paul Kupperberg with art by Dan Spiegel. We start in a foul, distant dimension. Zatanna is facing down a dark, shadowy version of herself. A dark version of herself who kidnapped a man, Jeff Sloan, last issue. This dark version has lured our good Zatanna to the dimension of imprisonment for one purpose. To see you die in my hands and yours, for they are, after all, one in the same hands. Zatanna reacts quickly. Unharmed, me, to Jeff, bring, ground. She gets him, and then sends him away. Earth, to back, safely, him, carry. We get a quick flashback to the prior issue, where the stage magician Blackwall had been a member of Zatanna's recent performance. One minute, Zatanna's doing her magic act, and the next, poof! She and that young man were simply swallowed up. He laments that all he's good for is useless parlor tricks when there's real magic afoot. Meanwhile, elsewhere in time and space, Dark Zatanna references JLA-191, where Zatanna caused some bizarre shift in the cosmic balance, which caused her deliciously evil side to manifest. Fighting. Her emotional agony, she manages to double evil, my down, strike. Two up, fly, stone. This vanquishes the enemy, but Z finds herself too weak to summon the strength for her spells. Blackwall is able to yell into the dimension that she opened when she sent Jeff back, and Z sees him yelling encouragement at her. Lacking the strength to perform her magic, she remembers the lessons she learned from Blackwall regarding stagecraft. Lessons of diversion and deception. So she makes a shield mirage of herself. And while Dark Zatanna attacks this, our Zatanna takes control of the elements of earth and fire and pure magic. They return to her where they belong. And with the last iota of her ebbing energies, the doppelganger gestures weakly and then is nothing. Z returns to the stage from where she disappeared, and she thanks Blackwall for his inspiration. Even a real sorceress can sometimes learn from a magician. Can I get a tall chai? And a large black coffee. And I suppose you're here with no agenda, as per usual? On the contrary, I'm here for comics. I think I can help all of you. Hello, I'm the caffeinated Clinton Robison, and I host a podcast called Coffee and Comics. On this podcast, I summarize, review, and discuss comic book issues, stories, and related media, usually in the span of time it takes to have a cup of coffee. 
Sometimes I'm joined by a guest, and sometimes I'm flying solo. So pour the coffee, take a sip, and turn up the volume as you listen to the Coffee and Comics Podcast. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, and directly on coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. And remember, this is where the comics are never too old and the coffee is never too cold. And we're back and we have two more stories to chat about before we discuss this issue. Next up again, with no ads in between, is another eight-pager. This one stars Hawkman. In the adventure, I have wings and I must fly. By the answer man himself, Bob Rosakis. With art by Alex Saviak and Rodin Rodriguez. We start with the winged wonder flying over the city and he spies out some bank robbers who've watched too many old movies. Their stick-up didn't hurt anybody, but their berserk driving could, unless I stop them. And so, he stops them. And while the bad guys are making terrible bird references, like Holy Crow, Dead Duck, and Shoot That Buzzard, a flying mace to the hood of their car is enough to stop the baddies in their tracks. Later, we learn that Carter is stressed over Shaira's recent departure, wondering where in the universe she is. His doorbell rings, and he lets in Mavis, who bursts in like a whirlwind there to help him. Without Shaira around, this place needs a woman's touch. How can you live in this pigsty? It's a good thing she's decided to move in, although Carter is perplexed, to say the least. Of course, you ninny. That way I can cook your meals, clean up this place, and take care of you. This proclamation includes a big old smack that Mavis plants directly on Carter's lips. At that, he kicks her out only for the doorbell to ring right after. But as Carter is yelling at Mavis again, we see that it isn't Mavis. Of course it's not. As a matter of fact, it's John Small, FBI. Has your wife returned yet, Mr. Hall? Carter's efforts to get rid of the Fed are less successful than his effort to get rid of Mavis. Don't play rough with me. Your wife's been implicated in a massive scheme to rob museums all over the country. Unless she proves otherwise, I'm going to ask for a federal warrant for her arrest. He does get rid of the guy, only to get word of a message for Hawkman at the Midway Observatory. Some kind of radio broadcast apparently coming from Thanagar. On his way there, he puts out a forest fire, because hero. Dr. Sinclair hands him a translated message, which reads that Thanagar is in ruins. Anarchy reigns. His help is necessary against Hyanthes. And in the very last panel, he arrives on the JLA satellite to be greeted by the stars of this very comic book. Superman. Batman. I have need of your abilities. To be continued. And last up is a 10-page Captain Marvel Jr. story. And yes, the word Shazam is prominently displayed in logo on that page as well. Entitled, The Menace of the Moon Tree. Because yes, there is clearly an exclamation point after both the word menace and then later after the hyphenated word moon tree. So again, if I may, the menace of the moon tree. So yes, there's punctuation in the middle of the title, but okay. Uh, This one, the menace of the moon tree, was written by E. Nelson Bridwell with art by Don Newton and Frank Ciaramonte. For this one, 
we're going to go with a pretty short synopsis. After a first-page splash that serves as a cover of sorts to this story, we start at Mrs. Wagner's boarding house, where the resident absent-minded genius Professor Edgewise has created a super seed that will enable him to build a living bridge to the moon. The seed grows a stalk, then into a tree, that grows so fast and so tall that it gets all the way to the moon, linking it with Earth. The professor's plan is to drive from one to the other. Freddy has to go into action as the professor has not considered the destruction the moon tree will cause to, for example, airplanes. And he hasn't thought about the consequences of the moon's orbit and earthly rotation on the tree bridge. I mean, let's just say this guy is not giving professors a good name. Captain Marvel Jr. uprights the tree from the moon, but before he can detach the other side from the earth, he feels that it's loose, already uprooted. And in the only good panel in this story, Captain Marvel Jr. tosses the tree bridge into the sun and then returns to Earth to find out that the tree, the stalk, had been cut down by a boy, a boy named Jack. The end. Now, I did say that the insides of this issue did not have any ads. The back cover was also ad-free, The outside of the back cover consists of Daily Planet Volume 81, Issue 19, containing an article celebrating JLA Issue 200, a profile of Gene Colan, and a Fred Hembeck cartoon about Selena Kyle giving up her life of crime to become a stand-up comic in the Catskills. And the inside back cover contains the letters page including a missive from little Russell Burbage, artist, friend of the Fire and Water Network, and fella that I've had dinner with a few times, whenever the irredeemable shag would blow his way into town a few steps ahead of the popo. All right, that is everything that is in this issue, so let's talk about it. A few big-picture comments to start. First, I am on record more than once on this network expressing my distrust of anthology comics. The problem I often have with them are twofold. One is that not all the stories are going to be as good as others. And I feel that the lesser stories tend to drag down my opinion of the whole issue in terms of whether I think it was a good deal or if I want to buy it. Fair or not. That's the way I feel. Now, the great thing, however, about buying cheap comics, like, say, this one, which I got for a quarter at the Akron Comic Con back in probably 2017, is that one story that is less than, that isn't really worth its page count, well, a really, really cheap comic can take a hit like that and still be worth it overall. One of the glories of the cheap men. My second issue is that for standalone, sort of one-off purchases like this, which most of my cheap purchases are, pulling random issues from a bin, you always get at least one story in an anthology that continues into the next issue, and at least one that is continued from last issue. And I totally understand the business reasons for that, why the companies do that, but it's a reason why I don't always like anthologies. What I really hope for, and what I got in this issue, fortunately, is that the majority of the stories come to an end. Maybe there are points that continue, that's fine, but the main adventure, I want that to end. For example, I wouldn't like this issue if all five of them ended with the lead hero being tossed off the roof of a really tall building. 
And in this issue, we only got that one. And Hawkman, I guess, to be clear, as to be continued. That's not too bad, and at a quarter, not nearly as important a consideration as it would be at a buck or two. And I did check the DC app, and no, neither this issue or, more importantly, the next one are available. So I'll just assume that Green Arrow fell to his untimely death. A more broad concept also that I've talked about before in a number of settings is that if you look at a lot of books from DC from this era, not all, of course, hear me on this, but I'd probably say the majority, although I haven't really done any sort of analysis on that, haven't crunched any numbers, that's just a hunch, but I think if you look at a lot of their output, a lot of their issues, you can see that things needed to change, in some cases desperately. That they were probably facing an upcoming uh, crisis, one might say. And a lot of the stories in this one, you can probably point to specific aspects within each of these five stories, as a matter of fact, that were a little out of step, a little old-fashioned, a little Silver Age. Now, on the flip side, I'm not saying that everything that DC did from 1985-86 onward, every choice, I'm not saying those were all good moves. But I am saying, and I think this issue serves as evidence for this claim, I'm saying that significant changes were going to be needed to modernize the stories. That being said, let's get to the individual stories. I'm going to rank them from least favorite to most, reviewing and talking, discussing each one as we go. And no surprise, we will start at the bottom with Captain Marvel Jr. It failed to work on almost every level. I admit that I'm not a huge fan of the Marvel family, save the Big Red Cheese himself, and, of course, Talking Tawny. Mary can work in the right setting, and so can Dudley, even. But I don't see much use, honestly, for Captain Marvel Jr. Not here in the modern day, and not even back there in 1982. As a matter of fact, I don't think DC had use for Jr. in 1982 either. As I said, the cover mentioning the five stories, the five characters that were within this issue, mentioned Shazam and included a picture of Captain Marvel on the cover, who does not appear in the story or in the issue. The cover doesn't say Captain Marvel Jr., and doesn't show his picture. Hmm. Interesting. One good point in the story, as I mentioned in the summary, was sending the tree, I mean the beanstalk, into the sun. Especially since that act served as a callback to Superman in the first story. Other than that, I just don't have much to say about this. Next up, I've got, in an order that I can't really decide, the two stories that do continue onward. Let's go with Green Arrow next, because they didn't quite explain well enough why he was in jail at the start of the issue, and how exactly he got released. There was some muddled legal thinking there, or at least elements from the prior issue that weren't fully explained to me. Those bits got lost to me in the compression required to tell an eight-page chapter of this story. But that aside, I like the drama of one of Ollie's arrows being used in the murder. And of course, we get yet another member of the multi-comic, multi-publisher Trask comic book dynasty. And Green Arrow gets manhandled pretty good in this story. He gets sneaked up upon more than once. And of course, the story ends in actually quite a good-looking panel. 
with him falling at us, falling towards the street from atop that building. Good story, and actually, a pretty great ending. And then ranked just a smidge above that when I put the Hawkman story. The story that we got in this issue explained pretty well, not fully, but well enough, that Shiera was gone, that Carter didn't know where she was, and that police authorities were interested in her whereabouts as well. I didn't get this plot of her trying to steal antiquities, but it does fit their you know, their storyline. So I was able to get to that point. Uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't a struggle to build a backstory uh, in my mind for that plot point. So that didn't slow me down. What did slow me down was Carter getting smooched on by Mavis. She is later, a few pages later, referred to as his assistant. But exactly who she was did confuse me a bit. I've just never run across her before, but I loved, loved, loved that he stopped on the way to get his secret message to put out a forest fire. He even gave us a PSA-style message about not tossing one's cigarette butts into leaves. And I thought the bank-robbing scene that started the story thought that was fun, too. And then we get the ending, with him on the satellite with bats and soups. And one of the reasons I wanted to look at next issue, in addition to confirming Ollie's gruesome death at the hands of pavement, was to see to what extent this became a team-up story, the three of them, and if that became the lead story in the issue. I just, I just don't know. I could have looked, of course, but that just spoils the fun. I enjoyed that story. And then we get Zatanna nosing in front of those two. Was this because we didn't have just one Zatanna in this story, but two Zatannas? Maybe. Don't judge me. What I did like, and it probably is a Bronze Age thing, but that's okay, was that the secret to solving this situation was something she learned from her mentor in stagecraft. Because I like when that is a part of Zatanna's past, the stage act that she and Zatara did. So placing the story in that setting and having her call on her non-magical skills to save the day, I think that's a nice bit of plotting. And on the script level, the war of words between good Zatanna and dark Zatanna, I enjoyed that as well. I don't like every type of Bronze Age story, but I like this type of Bronze Age story. And speaking of Bronze Age stories that I like, the finest story uh, in this issue was the lead. 14 pages of very good superhero storytelling, Superman and Batman versus a deadly virus. But that plot point wasn't my fault. It wasn't even the writer's fault. I'm looking at y'all, lovely listeners. That was your fault. But the details of that plot aside, I like how the two stars work together in that story, each one using their own strengths and skills, and each one knowing the strengths and skills of the other. I don't need the two of them to be BFFs, or even to be buddies, to hang out in their secret identities. I don't need that from Batman and Superman. For one thing, there can be an important message delivered when Batman and Superman are shown as having different views on law enforcement, different approaches in their cities, conflicts even, different relationships with the law and authorities, and yet not letting those differences get in the way of a relationship of respect, sometimes even of trust. I like that message. Respected colleagues, that's my preferred take on their relationship, not that they're besties. And in this story, that is what they were. They were respectful colleagues. And that's probably why this worked so well for me. 
and Lois Perry. Commissioner Gordon, they all had their moments as well. A solid, very Bronze Age adventure, and I mean that in all the good ways. So that story was a good way to start the issue and a good way to end the analysis. The Verdict on World's Finest, 277. Five stories, four of them, within varying degrees of good to pretty good. 48 pages of ad-free, cover-to-cover, non-stop action. The majority of the stories coming to satisfying conclusions, featuring a wide range of characters. This is an excellent example of of what the dollar comic era of DC was all about. This issue, a total and complete quarter bin deal. And that wraps up our coverage of World's Finest Comics 277, bringing episode 177 to a close. Next time, I'll be beginning a year-long process of associating monthly quarter bin selections with the 12 genres that have been linked to them. This will, fingers crossed, be the case with one quarter bin episode each month. Some months we may have more than one, and that second episode may not follow along with the related genre. But next time, On episode 178, in an episode to be released during January, a.k.a. hashtag Sci-Fi Comics Month, we'll be looking at Eternity Smith, number three, from Hero Comics, cover dated November 1987. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, World's Finest, Zatanna, whoever else was in the issue or the podcast in general feel free to contact me until next episode i'm professor allen and i'll see you in the quarter bin the quarter bin podcast is part of the relatively geeky family of podcasts Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.